The reading of the Scriptures from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 17, I invite your hearing of God's Word in faith, but also in joy and reverence that we have the Word of God. So, from Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning's uh, message is somewhat of a part two. Um, If you remember about two months ago, I preached from this chapter. And uh, if you weren't there or it was, uh, you've already forgotten it was unmemorable to you, (laughs) then I uh, invite you to look back upon our church's website or Facebook page and find July 25th and uh, to fill in a little bit more of the context, but I'll do some of that this morning. So if it's the first time you've heard me preach from this chapter, then you won't be left uh, out in the cold. Uh, 
I'd like to talk this morning in about uh, two main things. Number one, just briefly, I want to give a word about the structure and style uh, of the book of Revelation. I think that would be very helpful in days when so much bad teaching is going on and wrong uh, approaches to the book of Revelation and how we should study it are, are being uh, promoted. But second, and of course, mostly in chapter 12, I want to look at the church's journey in the wilderness and how both uh, there is certainly the persecution from the devil, but there is God's protection of us within the wilderness. So let's first of all just take a moment and uh, catch back up to where we uh, will focus our time on this morning. We'll mainly be in verses 13 to 17. But let me give you a little bit about the structure and style of the book of Revelation. After the introduction to the letter, which is chapter 1, uh, and then after the letters to the churches in Asia Minor, which are, are chapters 2 and 3, you have the bulk of the book, which is given through prophetic signs and visions. So from chapter 4 to chapter 20, we have a series of parallel visions. In other words, we cannot approach the book of the Revelation as a chronological book that begins at chapter 1, verse 1, and goes with chronological procedure and procession all the way to Revelation chapter 22, thus the book ends. It wasn't written that way. It was written with definite parallel visions, meaning there's a series of visions that are introduced in one part of the book and then will be gone over again, maybe with different light or different details in another part of the book. And each of these parallel visions, I believe there to be seven, there's always room to uh, understand them slightly differently, but uh, each of these visions culminate very happily for me when I'm trying to see where they all begin and end. They all culminate with a vision or a picture, a representation of the second coming of Christ in judgment and in glory. So the easiest way for my simple mind to, to discern in chapters 4 to 20 where these parallel visions begin and end is to begin with finding the places where the, the return and of Christ is uh, pictured for us and where uh, the judgment is definitely spoken of. And then you know that right after that, a new parallel vision would begin. Now, we're not going to take the time this morning, but I will say that the return of Christ is designated for us seven times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 7 at the end, chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 16, twice in chapter 19, and once in chapter 20. So there are the terminus points where the judge, the return of Christ, the judgment of all, and the, uh, the finality, the fullness of the kingdom will have come. And so anything after that would be the new age, right? The age that is to come. So chapter 4 begins the first vision and ends in chapter 7, and then you can go in and find it in that way. I think it's very helpful to mark the references in that way. Now, it's important, very important for us to recognize that the content of the, the visions described in, in chapters 4 to 20 of Revelation represent the time that we are living in now. Yes, they project forward to the return of Christ, which has not certainly happened, but the time designation of all of the visions picture for us the time that we are living in now, not some small period of time right at the end of human history before Christ returns. The book was not designed for only that small segment of Christians or whomever at the end of time. It was designed for all Christians between the 
first and the second coming of Christ. We're in the age today that the disciples call the last days. And when we recognize this, we recognize then that these visions in chapters 4 to 20 of Revelation are for us. We say, wait a minute. These, these things relate to me. This is for me. And so the book of Revelation, the bulk of it, comes forward in our minds and we are beginning to say, wait a minute. Jesus said throughout the book, the time is near. Be ready. The time is near. I understand that because we're living in the last days, the days between the first and the second appearing of our Savior. Now, one final word about the structure of the book from chapters 4 to 20, each being a parallel vision and each one culminating in the return of Christ. But notice this. I want you to turn to chapter 20 for just a moment. When we come to chapter 20, and we see, begin in verse 11 down to verse 15. This is one of those places, and the last one of the places out of the seven, where it culminates the vision with the return of Christ. This is clearly seen. Look at chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great, a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the terminus point, right? That is the end of this age and as Christ has come and judged all, and he has uh, terminated this age as we know it. Now, verse I didn't tell you that there's a series of parallel visions in chapters 4 to 22, did I? I said 4 to 20. Because notice the beginning of chapter 21, what happens here. After this age, after the return of Christ and the great judgment, I saw, says John, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it goes on. And in both of those chapters, we see the new heavens and the new earth representing a glimpse for us, not of this age, the last days, but of the age to come when Christ comes and makes all things new and we live in perfect righteousness with Him. Now that's exciting, isn't it? And it's a wonderful book to study and that's what I'm doing is encouraging you to study the book of Revelation. I encourage all of you to read the book of Revelation, this amazing portion of God's Word, and I encourage you to be uh, and, uh, faithful in, um, in your not neglecting that part of the Word. I've even heard preachers, I've spoken to them about the Word of God and book of Revelation, not that I'm any expert in it at all, not that it's without its difficulties, but I've spoken to them and they say, well, I just avoid that book. It's too difficult. Um, well, that book, my friends, is in the Word of God. And if a preacher says I'm going to avoid something because it's in the Word of God, then um, that's a problem. So not without its difficulties. I'm not, I'm not the solver of all mysteries, but I encourage you to study the book. All right? With that briefly done, second, we want to look in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation at the journey of the church into the wilderness. There's a couple of parts to what I want to say this morning in encouraging you from the Word of God. Number one, in the wilderness, it is a desolate and dangerous place. 
And so the first thing we're going to look at are Satan attacking the church in the wilderness. Certainly we have in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. But more importantly, second, we're going to look at God's protection of the church and provision for the church while they are in the wilderness. And this is where we take our encouragement from. Um, if, again, you weren't a part of the first uh, time that I preached here. Let me give you briefly the outline of the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. Verses 1 to 6 introduce the vision, and we see the main characters in that vision. Verses 7 to 12 explain the vision, or interpret it, we might say. And then verses 13 to 17 intensify the vision. So we see parallelism even within chapter 12, because there is progression in all of these visions, but sometimes the writer is going along and he thinks to himself, as the Spirit was leading him, let's back up now and let's go over this same ground that we introduced to the first few verses, but let's go over it with more detail. So what you see in verses 1 to 6, you will see in some form expanded upon and expressed in greater detail in verses 13 to 17, with the interpretation being verse 7 to 12 right in the middle. Okay, You could say it like this, just restating it. Verses 1 to 6 are the signs. Verses 7 to 12 are the what the signs signify, in verses 13 to 17 are further details of the signs. Okay. Well, our last time together we saw that the light-bearing woman of verses 1 and 2, the, the, the great sign that appeared was the woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and the crown of 12 stars on her head. We saw that that light-bearing woman represented the covenant community, the true church. Um, and we know that that is a reference going all the way back to Genesis and, and uh, where Jacob had a dream, right? And so rather than take the time this morning, I just want to briefly kind of go down through the first 11 verses and fill you back in on what these things represented. The true community of saints is the light-bearing woman. When Messiah came, we noted that uh, he was born of this woman. In other words, the covenant community coming out of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and David, and, and so forth, they were the lineage of Christ the Messiah. And when this woman was about to give birth, there is another sign that appeared, and that's in verse number 3, right? Another great sign, a great red dragon with the seven heads and the ten horns, and on the horns were diadems. And, and it goes down to the last part of verse 4 where it says the dragon stood before this woman, about to give birth so that he may uh, devour her child as soon as it was born. And we recognize the great red dragon to be none other than Satan. It's told to us, and we looked at that last time in the interpretive part of the vision, that ancient serpent in Eden who tempted our first parents and, and caused them to go astray. And he's trying to devour this child, which is Christ, uh, as we have seen in, in the text before, uh, as soon as it was born. And we know it's very well documented in the Gospels, Satan's attempts both before and after the birth of Christ to destroy the Messiah. But he is ultimately unsuccessful. Verse number 5 in the last part says that this child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And so in a very brief sentence right there, we see the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Christ to the throne of God where he rules the kingdom of God. And um, and so Satan was ultimately, he failed in trying to destroy Jesus, and the victory of King Jesus causes something to happen. And that reaction to the enthronement of Christ is, is found in verses 7 and following. But I'll, we'll look at the hymn 
in, in verses 9 and 10 that began to be sung in heaven. And it says, the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now the hymn begins, the praise in heaven. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now what has happened? King Jesus has been enthroned in the heavens, taking his seat at the right hand of the Father on high. And, the, and they're singing, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. How do you know what, what was the reaction in heaven? For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. What happened was the devil lost his before given privilege of accusing the brethren before our God day and night. He no longer has a basis for accusing us because the, before he said Ron's a sinner and he was right. Before he says Ron is worthy of the judgment of God and he was right about that so far. Before he said Ron has no place in heaven and he would say that about all of God's chosen. But when Christ paid for our sins, when the blood was shed upon the cross, and when he was buried and when he rose again with victory over the grave, he rose up to heaven and he said to the devil, you have no basis any longer of accusing my chosen people. He undercut the legs of all the accusations of the devil against us and having no more basis because Christ has paid fully for our sins and placed us in a position of righteousness and holiness before him, the devil has no more place of accusing us. And he threw him down. And he threw down his angels with him. The war between the angels of God and the angels of the devil was fought and won by Christ's victory. And that's where we are as we come now to verses 11 and 12, which are kind of transi transitory. Notice how we... And those that were rejoicing in heaven at the time that it actually happened overcame the devil. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even to death. They overcame him by the blood, by the word of their testimony, and they did not put their lives before their service to Christ, even if it means death. Now verse 12, when we're catching up to where we are this morning, for this reason rejoice, O heavens, I mean, there was a song sung and there was rejoicing and the rejoicing is still going on today. And so it is for us. Did your heart not leap with joy as we thought about the victory that Christ has wrought for us? And yet, notice what it says, but woe to the earth in verse 12 and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. He knows where he's at. He knows the game is up but he's going to do what he can to destroy the church and all the people within it in the time that he has. All right? So now we come to the verses that I want to look at today. That's catching you up on what we looked at last time. Well, the devil attempts to wipe out the church in two determined ways. He will not stop. He will never stop until he is finally and fully put into the lake of fire at the judgment of Christ. But he does this in a couple of ways, and I think these are very plain ways, as explained by the Scripture, but I think it is very encouraging for us to look at it again, especially in today's climate. Um, so the first way that he uh, is determined to destroy us as the church is by persecution. See in verse 13 where it says, When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he did what? Persecuted the woman 
who gave birth to the male child. Again, the woman represents the old covenant community up until the time of Messiah, and it certainly represents the joining of Jew and Gentile in the new community of saints. We are called Jews according to the New Testament definition, and we are uh, the, the covenant community of Christ, including all who have been faithfully called and served Christ throughout all time. But the devil tries, first of all, persecution. And when we trust in Christ by faith, we're suddenly in a, in a, I won't say awkward, that's not right. We're in a unique and ironic position. When we come to Christ, and some of you, I, I realize, have come to Christ very recently. Praise the Lord for that. When we do that, we're suddenly in a position where we're in this world, but we're no longer of this world, right? You heard it over and over. We're suddenly in the ironic position of being in a place that we no longer fully belong, not as we once were, not as belonging to the prince of the power of this world, not as belonging to the current like a strong running river that sweeps all the sinners in that current, and you can't get out of that current. We have been born again. We belong to Christ. We belong to the King of Kings. We belong to Messiah who has come and purchased us. And in the new birth, we've been given the Holy Spirit to indwell us. We're led by God. We are the sons and daughters of God. And that places us in a position of being in this world, but not of it. And that can be a lonely place. That can be a desolate place. That can be a difficult place. Now, the young, young kids are going, what are you talking about, Ron? My life's great. Mom and dad are great. Church is great. School's great. Well, let me talk to some of the older folks who have a few seasons of life under their belt. Yeah, life can come in and, and hit you hard. Life is life, and it's a fallen world, and it's not our home. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasure's laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Remember that old hymn about the stranger here? Well, there's an irony that Satan has been fully silenced in heaven as far as accusing us, and he's been completely defeated by the work of Christ. He's been cast down, and yet he's come to the earth to do the damage that he can do to the church in the time that he has left. And a war is going on, and we're in that war, and we must fight. Believer, you can't stand on the sidelines. The nature of the war is too great. Let's remind ourselves out of the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 the nature of this warfare that we're, is going on. Ephesians chapter 6. There was a time in my Christian life that I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just, you know, won't, I won't go to the warfare. I'll wait for the warfare to come me, to me. <laughs> That's a wrong approach because we're in it. I may not recognize the intensity of it and the time that I'm living in in these last days. That's my problem. I need to recognize that. The Scripture tells me that. But I don't have to wait for the war to come to me, nor do you. You're in it, Christian. Notice the nature of the war. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, Paul says to the church, and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist the devil. I'm sorry, in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. So we're in a great battle, and that's the nature of it. I don't have the time to spend right there, but I want to say that this war is ongoing until the return of Christ. Now, I want to talk 
briefly about the nature of spiritual warfare against all the fanciful and almost fantastic and outrageous even notions of what spiritual warfare is that are going around in the church today, I want to say that the orthodox model, the biblical model of our spiritual warfare is very simple. It is these things, evangelism, discipleship, and personal growth. Evangelism, discipleship, and personal holiness. Those things destroy the works of the devil. Those things defeat the attempts of the devil to destroy the church. Our textbooks are also the Scripture, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the moral teachings and ethical teachings that are found there, Jesus' own teachings in the New Testament about moral evil, and of course the, the bulk of the New Testament epistles where we are encouraged uh, to, to learn about the fight that we're in and we're learned to live evangelizing, making disciples, personal growth, sanctification, if you will, the process of sanctification. Those things deflect the fiery darts of the devil. Second Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The devil has come down to us having great wrath. And that was when Christ ascended to the throne, and it continues now, and it will continue until Christ makes his second appearing. And may it be soon. I believe we're in the last of the last days, but I'm not a, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I'll tell you that I know for a fact that we're in the last days and the devil knows that his time is short. Otherwise the, scripture, otherwise, the scriptures would not have said so. So the first thing the devil's going to do to try to get the church to go off track, destroy, to, to deteriorate, is he's going to persecute. Now, there's different, different levels of persecution, are there not? Today, I believe one of the main forms in America, anyway, of persecution is that of social pressure. You know, when we were kids in school, we heard a little bit about peer pressure, and didn't, I didn't think too much of it. I knew it was real. But today there's peer pressure, not only on children, but on adults. There's an effort, as you know, that if you state your opinion and someone uh, disagrees with you, they not only just state their disagreement, but they will try to destroy you. And social media has given a platform to such um, evil efforts such as that. Well, I'll leave it at that. Sometimes we are called upon to not love our life even unto death, and God give us courage in those days. And Christians all over the world are being called to that place. If you're not called to that place, though, believe, believe me, brothers and sisters, you are suffering some level or will suffer some level of persecution. Don't let it deter you. It's a tactic of the devil, but we are not ignorant of his devices. He uses another way, though, and this is found in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation in verse 15. Not only does he persecute the, the church, but he also deceives the church. Verse 15 says, The serpent poured water out of his mouth like a river after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. This is deception. What is the water referring to? Well, it's not real water. It's metaphorical, right? It's a sign. It's a picture. And of course... The picture is of a flood of water, like a flash flood in the desert regions over there where a, a, a heavy rain would all of a sudden just wash everything in its path away. It was a flood that was destructive and it would destroy what was in its path. But it's not real water that the picture is pointing to. The picture is that of a strategy or a method of Satan in which he seeks to pour out of his mouth deception and deceit in order to sweep the church away with that deception. 
It's a lot like Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15 where it talks about one of those places where it talks about the return of Christ. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With it, he smites the nations. Now, we don't expect a sword to come out of Christ's mouth and, and smite the nations with a literal sword. We understand it's a picture, and it's a picture of the words of Christ that are coming to judge the wicked. Jesus said, there is someone that judges in the last day, the word that I've spoken to you, that, that's going to be the judge. And so when Christ comes, the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth references that Jesus speaks, Jesus taught, Jesus promotes words of eternal life. The devil promotes words of eternal death, Jesus promotes words of eternal life. That's out of the mouth, that's the idea. And so the devil uses deception or false doctrine and corrupt practices to try to destroy the church. Let me ask you, do you think he's been successful in that method? <laughs> uh, yes is the answer to that question. Now, this is not a new problem. <laughs> in Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes to this church that he had gone and, and started, and they got it off to a strong church, and he writes back to the Galatians, and he says, Brethren, I'm, am brethren, I'm amazed that you are so soon turned away from the true doctrine of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another because there isn't any other gospel. But there are those among you who would pervert and twist and contort and destroy the true gospel. And he's warning them about that so soon. And it's a problem that's ongoing today. Listen to Gene L. Green in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 10. Listen to what he says about the words and how much they matter, the words of life versus the words of death. Eternal destiny is bound up with truth. To embrace error, however powerfully and plausibly it may be presented, is dangerous business. In our age, when truth is increasingly viewed as relative and personal, thoughts about the power and consequences of embracing error move to the periphery. The apostolic perspective is that there is a right way and there is a wrong way, and that the power of Satan is and will be powerfully operative to assure that people in the end will be eternally lost. The stakes of the battle for truth and against error could not be higher. And I agree with that statement. And so, according to John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the devil sends his ministers and his leaders into the church to try to destroy it. John said there that they went out from us. They were not of us, but they went out from us that it might be manifest that they were not all of us. Many antichrists, he said. You've heard that antichrist, singular, will come, but today, in John's day, and continuing on up until our day, there are many antichrists. They oppose Christ. They oppose his word. They oppose the truth of the, the foundation that the church is built on. And Satan is sending them wherever he may to uh, destroy and corrupt the church. And we see it. But the, here's the good part. Here's the good news. And this is the second part. And as it, while we are in the wilderness and while we are persecuted and attacked by the devil like a flood of water, God protects and provides for the church. In chapter 12, verse 6, it introduces something that is very ironic. The woman fled into the wilderness. And in verse 14, again, two great wings of an eagle were given to the woman that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Into the wilderness. We're in a wilderness. Like I said, this world is not our home. The wilderness is a dry, desolate, foreboding, unforgiving, no water, no food, lifeless place. And yet 
It is the place that God has provided for His church to be. It is the place that God has made for us. It is her place, meaning the church. Because God is in charge. Because God is sovereignly overruling. Because God protects and provides for us in the midst of the wilderness. Notice verse number 6. It says not only it's a place, the wilderness is a place prepared by God, but it's a place where she might be nourished for a thousand uh, 1,260 days. Again, verse 14, into the wilderness is her place where she's nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Remember in our first time together, looking at Revelation chapter 12, we said that that's not just a three and a half year period, but that's mentioned, those terms and other terms for that period of time are mentioned multiple times throughout all of the parallel visions in Revelation. They all refer to the same thing, the same period of time, the time between the first and the second comings of Christ. Not just a little period of time at the end of history. It's not the way the book was written. It's not the way we get the benefit of the book. But God protects us here and now, and He does it in a couple of ways, by protecting us and by preparing a place for us in the midst of the wilderness just as Israel of old. And that's the picture, isn't it? That's what it's hearkening us back to, to Deuteronomy and to Exodus, where God brought His people out of Egypt, which is a picture of the world. And He took them not immediately to Canaan, which was the promised land, but where did they journey? Where did they wander? In the desolate places. And yes, they sinned and they rebelled against God and, and they were judged there and it extended their time of stay. But the picture that John draws and for our minds to see in Revelation is that we, like the Israelites of old, have been drawn out of the Egypt of this world. We've been drawn out of sin and we've been drawn out of the, the, the land of destruction. God has placed our feet on the path of righteousness and we are moving toward that great celestial city. But we, we don't immediately get there, do we? It's there and it's ours and it's promised and it's sure. But we're in the meantime in the wilderness. It's a difficult place to be. But it's a place where God has prepared for us. Like He did with Israel of old. Yes, they were in the wilderness. But what did He do when they cried out for water? He brought water out of a rock. What did he do when they cried out for food in the wilderness. He brought the manna from heaven to provide for them. And over and over and day after day, for so many people, God proved Himself more than capable and more than gracious as He provided for them. And some of them, unbelieving, they murmured, we don't want to be in the wilderness. We don't like the wilderness. We want to go back to Egypt. We had, you know, we want to go back to slavery, essentially, is what they're saying. They missed the truth of what God has done for them, and they're looking at it through carnal-only eyes. But the eyes of faith say, God, you put me in the wilderness. You called me out of it, but I'm in the wilderness of this world, a fallen and a broken world. But I love you, and I love your word, and I, and I long for the the day when all things will be made new in Christ. You provide for me here. Unexpectedly, that's the picture. Water out of a rock in the wilderness. Quail from heaven, manna from heaven, unexpected blessings of God. If I stop for a moment and ask each one of you that have lived a little time in the Christian faith and, and you expressed your journey to me, I could say, how many times has God provided for you in very unexpected and delightful ways? How many times when it seemed the worst of times for you was the power and the grace of God more evident then than it ever was at any other time in your life? 
And you would give those to me, and you would say, Ron, let me tell you over and over, what a blessed, wonderful Savior we have. Well, I must hasten on because our time is nearly done. The care that God gives is that of a place where we can fly away. The woman flies from the face of the serpent. doesn't mean we go out of the world. Again, we're in the world, just not of it. God's not going to say, come to me and you'll never experience difficulty. God's not going to say, come to me and you'll never experience sickness or death. For Christians to expect to avoid all of those things is not biblical. But what does he say? In the midst of the wilderness, I will provide food for you. I will provide protection for you. I will deliver you and I will preserve you. Notice verse 16, what happens. The serpent pours out the water like a river out of his mouth, right? That's the false teaching and deception that's ongoing. But notice that the earth helped the woman and opened up its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. I mean, just the picture is as clear as it could be from the Old Testament. When we had the families of, of the men who, who rebelled, and Korah and Dothan and Abiram, I believe it was, who rebelled against God and His Word in the desert, the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them alive. The earth helped the church because God is over the church and God is sovereign over creation. And so when it looks terrible, like the church might fall off forever into error or fall off forever into false teaching or yield ground to false disciples, God will sovereignly oversee it so that the earth will help the woman by opening up its mouth and in judgment, swallowing up those false teachers in whatever way and in whatever time God so chooses. God's Spiritual presence. We talk a lot about it in this church, don't we? Especially in time when we're about to receive the Lord's Supper. We fly away. Where do we fly away to? <laughs> you know, your body's still where it always was. It's not a designation with GPS coordinates, is it? We fly away to our place of protection, and that is the presence of God, His spiritual presence by His Word and by His Spirit. We have the Word of God inscripturated and we flee to the presence of God through the Word of God. We flee to the presence of God by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And just like in the tabernacle in the wilderness, that was the place where God chose to localize His Spirit. We flee to Him today spiritually and we're delivered from all of our enemies and we are preserved and protected and kept. Psalm 23, 5 says, You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. <laughs> Those that are seeking to destroy me, I can see them right on the other side of the hill. But you prepare for me, God, in the midst of that a feast. And I sit down at the table and I rest in the power and the presence of God. Remember John uh, chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of, of Christ for His church. I encourage you to read that this afternoon or maybe in the days to come because you will see his care and his concern for the church's welfare. And he prays so mightily to the Father and every word is answered for himself and for his people. And in that we will be protected. Well, I'd like to remind us all very briefly and then I'll be done why the rage of Satan is directed to us. Verse 10 says it's because... We have overcome the devil by the blood of Christ, and it is uh, 
verse number 11, that is, that we hold to the testimony of Christ and we do not love our life even unto death. We are those covered by the blood of the Lamb. We give testimony to Christ and we yield up our lives in His service if it were to call for that. And we're yielding up our lives in His service whether by life or whether by death. And so, yes, we're persecuted. Yes, we're tested in this wilderness. But we're also, more importantly, nourished and protected by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the message of the book of Revelation. You might say, well, what's the, what's the theme and overall message of the book of Revelation? We are in a wilderness because we, this is not our final home. We're journeying toward that celestial city, but in the meantime, we are protected. We are preserved. We are provided for in abundant and unexpected ways because God, our gracious Father, has ordained it that it be so. So my encouragement to you is to never give up, never lose hope, never lose faith. Always trust in the power of the cross. Live in the wilderness with a great expectant hope because one of these days we're going to get to Revelation chapters 21 and 22 when we live in the new heavens and the new earth. And may it be very soon. May the Lord come. Even so, it says at the end of the book of Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus.